Welcome to the last Tuesday home time for summer. In Melbourne at least, it's been running hot and cold and unfortunately, unless more is done to address climate change, we might be in for more changes to our environment. Let's all do a bit to make sure this doesn't happen. But today, the failure of Comcare, a statutory authority of the Australian Government, to protect the Tamil family incarcerated now on Christmas Island. I'll be speaking with retired lawyer Max Costello. Susan Price is the co-coordinator of Green Left. Last week we heard from Pip Inman, who is the other. Today it's Susan. The Australian Government's involvement in assisting the murderous regime in the Philippines, activist May Kotsakis will be talking to us, and the military coup in Burma. Should be looking closer at the military takeover in Thailand as well. I'll be speaking with Debbie Sothard, who's a human rights activist for Burma, based in Bangkok. But first, he's back, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, several weeks that were, from early in the break, we enjoyed seeing big supremo scuttle them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, displaying his COVID protocol observance by elbowing just about everyone who came within elbow distance while laughing happily, especially elbowing Josh Friday of icebergs and other economic garoots. Fun, fun elbowing, and I thought, what a state of the nation, the two near-identical parties led by elbow and elbow. Well, I suppose summer is a time for pantomime. Back to this week, Scummo and Co said they would nudge companies that make a climate reduction committal to ensure they are paying more than lip service to climate change if there is such a thing. Uh, Seeing we're only giving it lip service, we, we better make sure someone's treating it seriously, the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, declared. With the Socialist Party having its own troubles sorting out how to address climate change while supporting fossils, one frontbencher asked about the internal wrangling responded, when you're a party of ideas, and I thought, well, yeah, yeah, good point, but we're talking about the Socialist Party. After the Myanmar generals declared the election everyone else assessed as fair and untainted was rigged, or certainly that the people had abused the democratic process by getting it wrong, and therefore forcing the generals to re-seize the power and corruption, or sorry, business interests, monopolies they'd never relinquished in the first place, they received an urgent call from Florida of all places. Why didn't I think of that when I was commander-in-chief? Best thought of that ever, ever from a man who also knew an election was rigged despite everybody else except his band of followers declaring it fair and untainted, forcing poor Donald to urge his brains trust followers, the odd neo-fascist and general moron, to attack the joint and smash it up peacefully. Best peaceful smashing up ever, ever. With populist Aung San Chi again under house arrest, the week that was sought a comment from the populist. I kind of know. She kind of knew how the Yugas felt when I sold them out. Following the failed People's Military Coup in Donald Territory, an attack on the very international symbol of democracy, of liberty, freedom and, which all means the freedom of capital, overseen by the Capitol, a Democrat big shot called Shifty moaned, I never thought I'd see that in our capital. Those things are reserved for the capitals around the world. We invade. Perhaps there should be a new phrase in the grammatical lexicon, Trump logic. 
trample the poor logic applied so assiduously by proud broady boy, as long as he doesn't have to live there, now track parvenu or nouveau riche, Eddie McGuire, you so poor, after that damning report that the footy club he had presided over for decades has a history of ingrained racism, which made Eddie so proud, a proud day he boasted. Donald Bleed, he's almost outdone you. Still, when Eddie likened an indigenous champion to a large ape, he apologised and explained he didn't mean what he'd said. We'd like to think he doesn't mean most things he says, but that's being too hopeful. Yes, he apologised, and when he said a woman's sports journal should be drowned, well, can't remember if he apologised or not for that one, but anyway, it was just a bit of fun with the boys' macho joke, and he didn't mean any harm. This ad the other night informed us informed readers read Lord Rupert of Wapping's True Blue Aussie Trailian with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top. And I thought, for once, there is truth in advertising because readers would have to be well informed so they can see through the pages of crap. Speaking of rigged elections, an African autocrat muscled them Vini one yet another to extend his 35-year rule, scotching allegations of cheating, rigging the whole thing, allegations based on no stronger ground that his biggest challenger was under house arrest and barred from campaigning, while criminals, because it was a crime, campaigning for him were subject quite properly to the full force of the law. When Muscle then made it clear the military forces stationed at his opponent's house were there to protect him for his own security, see, ever thoughtful, ever considerate. Although, one minor problem, Muscle then Vini proudly declared this election was probably the cleanest for ages. That is, the ages in which he has been elected and re-elected, which some might consider a, a bit of an admission that he'd rigged the lot. Not sure that was his most convincing defence. Speaking of Africa, the consistency of the week award to richer than rich resource and pastoral exploiter, or sorry, respected business person, Twitty Mine the Forest, whose personal philanthropic fund monitors and denounces modern slavery around the globe. Millions of victims, while his resource arm signs new resource contracts with the Republic of Congo and other countries infamous for their levels of slavery. And Twitty also assumes the right of resource giants to explore and excavate wherever they wish, landholders having no refusal rights like when Twitty's four fathers and four mothers took over the huge pastoral estate where he was raised, ignoring the rights of the indigenous people they displaced. Not that Twitty isn't a great supporter of indigenous people. Why? He's, his family allowed many of the displaced to work on their land. Maybe that's when Twitty realised the scourge of slavery. Not that his family practised slavery. After all, his family did provide them with a, a bit of tobacco, and, and tobacco wasn't cheap. Supports will accept when he wants to destroy the odd sacred site, but only because there's a quid in it. Anyway, Twitty has twice gone to court and won both cases, opposing other resource companies moving onto his land. Consistency Award. Denounce slavery but sign deals with slave centres? Assume the right to march onto other people's land as long as it's not his own? Well, yes. He consistently acts in the interests of Twitty, of his own wealth, his own filthy rich. On that, 
see the usual suspect big retailers have declared they will investigate their supply chains to ensure they were not dealing with modern slavery, which is obviously a rundown from wage slavery, and we know they are sincere in telling us they will review their supply chains. After all, they've been telling us that for years. On wage slavery, just as the government comes up with a surefire way to create employment, making workers worse off overall, the bloody selfish unions attack this job creation scheme, but as the evil unions hog the limelight, complain, 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 spare a thought for the poor caring employers racking their brains to come up with new ideas to generate employment. Job creation, their sole raison d'etre. Like wiping out penalty rates altogether in retail and hospitality and replacing them with a bit more in the pay packet. A brilliant proposal. And what thanks do they get? The evil, evil unions claim this would constitute a wage cut, as if caring employers would propose something that would make workers worse off. The unions basing their frivolous objection on nothing stronger than the deal stitched up between, no, no, agreed between the big retailers and salt, sugar and fat junk food lots and the shopping the workers association. Note, not union association, waiving penalty rates for a bit extra in the pay packet, which inadvertently left workers only a few million short in the pocket. So with that precedent, surely bosses wouldn't again be proposing something that would make them more profit at the expense of the workers they so care about. Shame unions, shame. Obviously, the Shopping the Workers Association and the caring employers must have made a, a slight multi-million dollar miscalculation, an easy mistake to make. Oh, and the Bitrubler Aussie Business Profits Council wants another sensible change to the proposed Industrial Relations Bill. The fact that they can be penalised for underpaying workers when the underpayment is inadvertent, and after all, it is always inadvertent although we do keep wondering why they never inadvertently overpay workers, but, but why quibble? With Woolworth's trillions facing an $8 million penalty for underpaying workers a mere 400 mil, which is big time inadvertent, and presumably over and above the deal they stitched up, or sorry again, agreed with the Shopping the Workers Association. And yes, you guessed it, the bloody evil unions want the penalty rates retained. Our old mate in us will cost the workers of the Troop Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group says the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers want to crucify the caring business class, oppose sensible reforms providing flexibility and, well, the same guff we've been hearing for years. Another year, the same crap. The I'd hate to see it go bad award to SpaceX, one of the companies hoping to send a rocket and maybe people to Mars. After all, we're running out of planet to stuff up here, so let's go and stuff up another one. Anyway, after the previous test flight of a prototype rocket crashed and blew up on landing, the company said of the latest trial, we had again another great flight. Another? The previous one blew up? Oh, and this one? Yeah, it too crashed in a fireball. We had again another great flight, he boasted. We've just got to work out that landing a little bit. <laughs> SpaceX, your I'd hate to see it go bad award is on its way. Let's hope the award doesn't crash. And in the uh, what can we say department, former Hayseed and Cheap Shit Party Supremo brackets disgraced our old mate Barnacle says, in fact, has moved a motion that the Renewable Energy Funding Agency fund a brand new state-of-the-art 
coal-fired power station. Let's stress that. Let's say that again. Barnacle says the Renewable Energy Fund should, should fund a coal-fired power station. It's not often the week that was is left speechless, but, but what can we say? Although competing with Barnacle in the what-can-we-say department, furniture big shot Nick the Prophet Scarly, which announced a 90%, that's right, 90% profits increase to $40 million after happily copping $3.6 million in government wage subsidies. Asked whether he would hand the government handouts back, Nick mused, It's a difficult one. Sure is, Nick, what can we say? Barnacle's strong competition for Brain of the Year, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, denies any wrongdoing in ignoring expert advice on community grants and handing them out to marginal caring business class party seats just before the last election. Presumably these seats could spend the community grants on a few extras for the sports faculties. The government also kindly handed them in, the, in a timely manner. How come they all went to your seats, Pete? I didn't know they were, you know, like all marginal caring business class party, like, you know, seats. Uh, th then why did you ignore your departmental expert advice? Because they wanted us to, to hand the money to seats that weren't, you know, like marginal caring business class party like seats, uh, which you knew nothing about. Nothing. And in the Who Do We Barrack For department, finally, this corporate battle over the advertising fortunes generated by news. Two behemoths face back off or else and gaggle versus behemoths Lord Rupert of Wapping, Kerry Stacks of Profit, the, the nine foul facts, no longer foul facts empire, behemoth versus behemoth, filthy rich versus filthy rich. Tough one, listener, but who do we barrack for? Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. There would be few Australians who have not heard of the Marug Appen family, formerly from Sri Lanka, taken from their home in Bilawala in central Queensland 
in March 2018 when their visa expired and sent to a Melbourne detention centre. Unable to deport them due to an injunction, the vindictive Australian government sent the family to the remote Christmas Island detention centre closer to Indonesia than Australia, only 150 k's from the coast, where they exist in a demountable building at a cost of $4,000 a day. But far more important is the impact of the family members' health and mental well-being. And it's that care and responsibility that Max Costello will highlight in this interview. But first, Max, just explain first your background in this area concerning asylum seekers and refugees. Max Costello here. I was a prosecuting solicitor with WorkSafe Victoria for five years and then lectured in Employment Law 1 after I was with my main employer's commission at RMIT University for 15 years and, as you'd expect, it was in part of a, a degree in management. Workplace law covered various things, but including health and safety, so I kept up to date with development in the area and I'm still a subscriber to a very interesting uh, informative publication called OHS Alert. keeps me up to date with cases and law changes, so that's my... Uh, expertise. Retired now, I'm I'm not a practicing solicitor. So today we're talking mainly about the family of Tamil refugees stuck on Christmas Island, 150 k's off the coast of Indonesia. Now they're under the care of the Australian government. Can you explain what that means? In particular, they're in a Commonwealth government workplace and that means that the Commonwealth Work Health and Safety Act of 2011 applies. Christmas Island is an external territory of Australia, so in effect they're they're, um, part of Australia. But even if they happen to be, which they're not and never have been, if they happen to be housed in the uh, regional processing centre on Nauru, they would also be covered by the Work Health and Safety Act because, as, quote, it has external jurisdiction uh, if it's a Commonwealth workplace. But, you know, that's a bit of history. When those two PCs were operating, the detainees there were also covered by the Act. But the um, Papua New Guinea one on Manus Island closed uh, several years ago and the the one on Nauru has been empty since uh, 31st of March uh, last year. So that's uh, a dead letter now. But since they're on Christmas Island in a, a, a little a little unit called an alternative place of detention or APOD. It's on or next to the main detention, immigration detention centre. I think it's probably on the property, but it's a, it's a little APOD. They're not part of the, the main, uh, not housed in the main uh, immigration detention centre. That at the moment only holds, as far as we know, people awaiting deportation for having uh, failed the character test, usually not always for having committed criminal offences. Long answer to your short question, but because they're in short, because they're uh, held on a Commonwealth, at a Commonwealth workplace, the Health and Safety Act applies. Just a little back, bit of background on this family, the, the parents there, they fled the civil war in Sri Lanka, their perilous journey to Australia, eventually settled in Biloela in central Queensland, though taken out of their into a detention centre. Now they've been on Christmas Island for 
over two years, I believe it is. I know you aren't a medical person, but you can imagine or you've read about the impact that this situation must be having on these parents who feel that they can't care properly. Well, they can't care properly for their young children. That's right, Janet. It goes back the the medical neglect of this family goes back uh, a fair way. On the 20th of May 2019, I, having seen press media reports of the uh, the shocking uh, lack of dental care, I think I sent you a, a, an email which includes an article or two from uh, current then. I think it was The Guardian and, and another publication, Crikey, I think, that had photos of the little girl's teeth. They're brown and rotted. Yes, there was an article in uh, Crikey dated the, May the 15th, 2019. A few days later, I sent a request to the regulator, so-called Comcare, the regulator of the Health and Safety uh, Act, asking Comcare, that's the regulator, to prosecute in this case. It's just the photos themselves just tell you that it was, it was just the people running the detention centre, they were then housed in the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Centre, MITRE for short. It's obvious that the, the guards who are under the control of Australian Border Force and the medical staff who, who work for a contractor called International Health and Medical Services, they must have known, they did know, that those teeth were getting seriously damaged. And uh, yet it wasn't until the Victorian Commissioner for Children intervened uh, and there was even further publicity that very, very belatedly the medical care was uh, provided. I never heard back from Comcare. My request was just ignored. Then, as you've said, uh, on the... 30th of August 2019, the family was abruptly transferred to Christmas Island. According to Guardian Australia on the 27th of November 2019, there's an article headed, No Written Record of Advice that led to the Biloela family's detention on Christmas Island. Unquote. It was a decision of uh, Dutton, and you'll recall that uh, Dutton was about to using his powers, was about to deport the family to Sri Lanka and only a last-minute injunction uh, stopped the, that flight from occurring. Instead, they were taken to Christmas Island. Clearly, the, the shock of that, the trauma of that, and the fact that Christmas Island is so remote and they were, at that stage, the only people, the only detainees on that centre. It's almost self-evident that that's going to do immense psychological harm to the whole family. What does the Act say about the health care for detainees in the situations such as they are in? In relation to both health and safety, the Act says that anyone at your workplace, whether they're workers or other persons, now those other persons at any sort of uh, detention facility are the detainees, of course, but also visitors and uh, people who come and go. Uh, visitors probably the main other subgroup. But in a, in a commercial workplace, of course, it's your clients and customers. Everyone at your workplace has to have their health, which includes, it's defined in psychological health, uh, protected 
Now, it's, it, I think I mentioned that when I was last time on your program, it's a criminal offence not to uh, safeguard health and safety of people at your workplace, but it's an unusual criminal offence because the offence occurs even before there's identifiable harm. For example, in the old factory situation, if a, if a worker loses half an arm in a machine, that's not when the offence occurs. The offence occurs before that, when the operator of that workplace failed to have proper guarding in place. So the, the offence is your failure to proactively, preventatively ensure health and safety. And what that means is that as if you run a workplace, you have to go through a, a, what's known in the trade as a hazard ID risk assessment, risk elimination process. You have to list all the possible hazards to health, including psychological health and safety. And then one by one, you have to risk assess them. And the access, that means how likely is that hazard to eventuate? And if it does eventuate, how harmful is it likely to be? Now, that tease that you might have a list of 50 potential hazards and it boils down to, with that uh, risk assessment, only, say, 10 really serious risks. And then it says you must eliminate them. The fact that there are, as I said from Guardian Australia, says there's no record of any advice that led to the family's uh, sudden move to Christmas Island, that clearly indicates that that process wasn't carried out. I mean, just think from a... If, Forget, leave Mr Dutton out of the picture. He sort of seems to grow horns and his, his persona intrudes. But just if you're just operating a workplace, a detention centre, the, the one in Melbourne, you have to look now, if we send them to Christmas Island, let's, what are the risks? Well, they're the only detainees there. They're two young, very young girls. They're going to have no friends to play with. Their social development is going to be curtailed. Uh, that is a serious risk, and uh, how to prevent it? Don't take them to Christmas Island. That's the crime, the, the apparent criminal offence here, the, the failure to eliminate an obvious, serious, preventable risk. It's proactively and preventatively ensuring that there are no risks. Or if the risk can't be totally eliminated, it has to be the access it has to be minimise, that is, controls, you know, not just left off the list. So it's it's a very, very demanding obligation on workplace operators. And it's not as if the government doesn't know because there was a petition by 700 paediatricians and health workers explaining all of this, how this is going to impact on the development of these two girls. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and the medical evidence that detaining children, even even leaving aside the remoteness and, and extraordinary additional risks to psychological health, particularly for the kids, I suppose, but leaving aside that uniquely oppressive uh, situation on Christmas Island, back uh, when there was the, the, the inquiry into uh, the health of uh, detainee children, by the Australian Human Rights Commission uh, way back. It had psychiatric and childcare experts giving evidence that uh, detention itself with children is uh, very da damaging to their psychological health and it impacts them sooner and more severely than adults. 
having become aware of that, that sudden move to Christmas Island, I again wrote to Comcare, this time on the, the 4th of March 2020, because you have, there has to be, under the Act, you can seek a prosecution from Comcare, but there has to be at least six months between the uh, apparently offending date of the apparent offence and, and, and your letter, the opportunity to write a letter. You, you've got to give Comcare, the regulator, some chance to take action. Well, there was none. So I wrote a please prosecute request to Comcare, and as with my first one, I had explained the law, argued the case in some detail. I got a letter back in a few months. Uh, I wrote on the 4th of March 2020, and on the 4th of May, a couple of months later, Comcare wrote back and said I had provided insufficient evidence uh, that there was a serious risk to psychological health. In other words, nothing to see here. We're not taking any action. That was it as far as Comcare is concerned. You would know by now that with the affliction of time that the total cost to date of keeping the family on Christmas Island is the run, the going rate I understand is um, is 4000 a day. So, uh, and they've been there since the 30th of August 2019. So uh, your listeners can do the sums if you don't do, do them for them. It's a huge cost, and as you might have seen recently, Minister Dutton has has been releasing people held in the hotel alternative places of detention, the hotel A-pods, because he said it's too expensive keeping them in detention. Well, (laughs) who sent them to Christmas Island at enormous expense? He did. Interestingly, very soon after that, that move, about a month after that abrupt move, uh, there's a heading in the Guardian Australian, Australian article of the 23rd of September, so that's three weeks uh, later, saying that the family was, quote, told to get comfortable on Christmas Island. So that gives you some idea of the, by, by home affairs. Yeah, get used to it. You need to adjust. The same article quotes Priya, the mother, saying her family is being put through mental torture, unquote. This was a comment made by uh, Mr. Milver Ganim of the Tamil Refugee Council. He had rung them and spoken to the family soon after their move, and that was what they were telling him, that they felt they were being put through mental torture, which indicates exactly what, um, as you say, the doctors and so many others have been saying, that uh, this is putting their psychological health at risk. Well, it's not just Australian law. The detention of children in this manner, offshore location, contravenes the UN Conventions on the Right of the Child. And this is not the only UN Convention that this government has broken regarding refugees and asylum seekers. Well, well, that's right. And that's why we hope that if, for example, there's a change of government in in the next federal elections, that the Labor Party will bite them, and the Greens, of course, are on side all along, uh, will bite the bullet and, and legislate to establish a human rights body, legislate a charter of human rights. As there is uh, one in Victoria, I think it might, there are a couple of others, I think Queensland might have one as well, but it's a couple of the states who have already done that or are thinking about it. But until those various conventions, treaties and so on, as human rights instruments and until they're part of 
the, the law that is part of an act of parliament of Australia, they're unenforceable by the courts. That's as far as the uh, detention of detainees are concerned. I should add, it's not very well known. The, there is one set of human rights uh, that is enacted, put into an act of parliament. That was under Howard, of all people. He um, virtually cut and pasted the entire International Criminal Court legislative scheme, the crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes, and cut and paste them into the Commonwealth Crimes Act. So they are there, and in fact the uh, the people who allegedly killed Afghan civilians could, in theory at least, be charged with uh, war crimes under that act. And similarly, Home Affairs and its... its uh, actual operational arm, that is Australian Border Force, which has specific control of all all detention facilities, it could be charged for crimes against humanity committed under that act in, in detention centres of, of various types. But the problem is the um, no charges can be laid without the written approval of the Attorney General. That was a very cunning little John Howard proviso, so don't hold your breath on that one. Can we look at the recent court cases and the role of the the Minister's office in hopefully, in their view, sending this family back to Sri Lanka? As many of your listeners would know, the Minister, and that includes now we have two Ministers, we have the Home Affairs Minister, which continues, who continues, uh, Peter Dutton, and also what I might call the junior minister, the Minister for Immigration, Multicultural Affairs and a number, it's a sort of smorgasbord junior ministry and it it was under Minister Coleman and he went off sick for a long time. Alan Tudge filled in for a while and now we have Alex Hawke with an E uh, as that minister. Dutton as the head minister and the junior minister, as if I call it, if I can call them that, they have an absolute personal discretion to say that these people deserve protection or you know they're refugees or deserving of protection either one of them can issue a visa and that continues and that's why and it's in today's the Saturday paper the uh, Angela Fredericks uh, and the lawyer for the Bilawela family is saying we continue to call on the on the humanity of the uh, Minister Dutton and Minister Hawke and, and, and their, to their better nature and ask them to exercise their power. They could. They, they, this is the thing, apart from the cost, the family could have been staying in Bilawala all this time while their legal matters were being uh, considered. Nothing in law prevented Dutton and now Hawke from allowing that to happen. It's not essential uh, to be in detention to have your rights under the Migration Act determined, or your applications, I should say, and to be determined. And the article in today's uh, TSP uh, talks about the, um, the, the case and, uh, and that continued reliance on the ministerial discretion. But, but of course, the ministers don't have, don't have any duty to exercise that discretion. As, as the Act says... Their, their power to allow detainees to apply for these and to issue them, that power is not compellable. In other words, the minister cannot be forced to make a decision. So really, the family, 
continues to rely on the goodwill of a minister. That's without going into the legalities and complexities of the case. That's the situation uh, they continue to find themselves in. Over months, the government has been pretty sure that they would win this case and the family would have been on their way to Sri Lanka. What evidence is there that this is the case? It's been reported that there was a plane landing and, you know, that might have been ready to take them straight away to Sri Lanka if the uh, court case had gone the other way. And that's despite the fact that uh, uh, the family had the right to uh, appeal, really, Veronica's case, but they wouldn't deport a child alone, so it's effectively the family. There was an appeal right, and had they flown the family out immediately after the case, if the decision had gone the way, they would have been denying the family uh, the appeal right. Yes, and it's interesting that in the course of the court case, there are reports of what the exorist going up to first the Minister Coleman and then later effectively to Minister Hutton. And the ones going to Coleman were, were saying two things. Yes, you should allow them to apply because this is bizarre, this is bizarre, Jan. The, the Migration Act says that people, boat, what I'll call boat people for short, so-called illegal maritime arrivals, they do not have even the right to apply for a visa unless the minister exercising discretion says, I, I hereby give you that right. They call it in the, in the court case lifting the bar, the barrier on that situation. And then secondly, asking the minister to consider actually issuing uh, a slightly different type of visa for Monica as com- and the children as compared to the adults, but nonetheless exercising that discretion. In the early advices, the advice was towards, you know, hinting towards granting uh, the right to apply to visas and, and, and perhaps granting the visas. But in the court case, as the, as the time went on and the advice was going to Dutton, it started to move towards transport costs. Now, I'm just, I'm trying to find the uh, actual passage in the court case, but it, word transport costs is really talking about costs of flying the family, deporting the family, flying them to uh, Sri Lanka. That was the, that came out in the court case, which was quite interesting to uh, to learn. And it seems as if the decision, the, the one that deprived Veronica of, of uh, natural justice or fair process, comes from the office of the minister, the minister's office. It seems pretty clear that Dutton is behind it his decision really or his approach that's driving it and just says that no further action is required, which is code for saying your applications uh, do not succeed. But it was because it was just an arbitrary sort of announcement rather than actual consideration of the case. On the 29th of May 2019, the referral was finalised at the request of the Minister's Office as not requiring further action. From the 23rd of July 2019, the actions in the department seem in general to have been related to the anticipated removal from Australia of the appellant and her family. That's the uh, the quote from the case. 
we haven't covered uh, yet the actual living conditions of the of the family and what they say about it. They were all sleeping in the one room. There was potentially a room adjacent for the girls to be in, but but with you know they're still very young and the parents were worried they wouldn't necessarily hear them if they if they called out. So they've reluctantly um, accepted the fact that uh, the whole family is is sleeping in the one and one room. And last I read, they were just in the one double bed. The cruelty of the Australian Border Force on behalf of the Australian government is just extraordinary. And this family is not the only one. You might have heard there's a Luke Gosling federal member for the Northern Territory Labor member about two or three weeks ago and made a speech in the parliament. And you had an adult family of... Um, parents in the late 50s, male child and, and female child aged 21 and 32 or so, the luxury of two rooms, but the beds were a single bunk atop a single bunk. So the, the parents have been married for, what, 40 years, don't have a double bed to sleep in. The petty cruelty of uh, this government through the, the likes of Dutton and the Australian Border Force is just astonishing. Where does this case go from here, Max? I'll just read from today's the Saturday paper. The outcome being billed as a, quote, win, unquote, for the family leaves them in the exact same limbo they were in before, unable to be removed from Australia while the process remains on, ongoing, unable to return to Bulawila as the things stand. There are still two paths available to them, the legal and the ministerial although neither seems probable, given uh, that a change of heart by Home Affairs Minister Dutton is their best hope. Uh, but then it goes on to consider, you know, the politics and the uh, the need to keep up the, the family pressure. And it, I think we're getting into too much legal detail if I go any further, but that's, that's the basic situation. Um, and I'm not sure if the family lodged an appeal already. There are multiple ways the Minister's could use their discretionary powers. Alex Hawke still has the power to lift the bar, continue to have the power, as I was saying before, to issue visa and release them into the community while the, the case continues. I'm not sure exactly what legal process. It's sort of a halfway decision, you see. Family didn't win the appeal outright. In other words, like, for example, they didn't say the minister made a wrong decision. Uh, they just said that uh, the process was inadequate because there wasn't um, the fairest of processes. They're still in limbo, basically, still stuck in detention. A final issue, Max, is a, a case that is currently going through Parliament and other areas at the moment about an alleged rape in Parliament House. How does that fit in with... Yes. Occupational health and safety. Again, the Parliament House is, a, is clearly a Commonwealth workplace and the Health and Safety Act applies. And I've written to, uh, you know, Labor and Greens uh, senators and, and members of Parliament. Yes, the Health and Safety Act applies and uh, clearly the party's concerned and I think it's, it's see because there are two things going on each minister or member of parliament personally employs staff so there's, a, there's you know however many members of 
the members and senators here are, there are X number of employers. So each one of them has the in person the duty to proactively and preventatively look after the health safety of, the, of the, their staffers. But then there's the building. If you have the management and control of a workplace, that is Parliament House overall, there's a, a twin stream of legal um, duties under the Health and Safety Act. There's the individual one of the individual employer, if you like, and the, then there's the general one of the, uh, the government itself running the whole Parliament House. And, uh, you know, it seems quite apparent that hazard ID risk assessment, risk elimination process, they haven't, they clearly haven't eliminated the risk of uh, either bullying or uh, sexual the risk of sexual abuse. So that because this is a fast-moving situation, I, I'm turning my mind, uh, and perhaps others are as well, as to uh, what could be done under the Health and Safety Act. But there's a very interesting little uh, aspect in today's Saturday paper article on the rape by a person who herself was a staffer who was sexually abused, and she has established an organisation called Changing the Headline, and uh, she writes very powerfully, but she mentions in passing that under the Ministerial uh, Staff Act, or I have to get the exact um, title of it, the police can only, uh, here it is under the Members of Parliament Bracket Staff Act, uh, there are immunities and privileges. And the uh, quote here is, she mentions is, it is established practice that police do not conduct investigations, make arrests or execute any process in the precincts without consultation with and the consent of the presiding officers. Now, the presiding officers, maybe they're the Speaker of the House, and I don't know who the presiding officer, but even police, police can't just go in and start investigating and laying charges, they have to get permission. What I need to look up, and I've only seen this this morning, is whether that sort of exemption or restriction applies to other law enforcement agencies, in this particular case, health and safety inspectors. But since police are mentioned, perhaps they've overlooked the power of health and safety. Health and safety inspectors can enter a workplace at any time, with or without permission. And there's another angle too. If if there's a, a what's called a notifiable incident, a, a rape, <laughs> a workplace is surely serious enough to be notified to the regulator. That's Comcare. If there's an alleged notifiable incident, the site, the incident site, must be preserved unaltered until the inspectors arrive. Well, that's that's too late. They clean the couch the next day in Reynolds's office. There's a lot to look at here, uh, Jen, so I, I need to do some further research on the health and safety angle of the, uh, of the alleged rape. I've been speaking with retired lawyer Max Costello. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
we've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. I'm speaking now with Susan Price from Green Left, and Susan, together with Pip Hinman, is a coordinator of Green Left. But before I ask you what that involves, Susan... Can you talk about your introduction to Green Left Weekly back 30 years ago? I would have sold the first issue of Green Left that um, was published back in 1991. We actually issued a, a little free broadsheet ahead of publishing our first edition uh, because the Gulf War had broken out and we were you know, keen to have something to distribute at the big anti-war protests that were happening so yeah so I guess it was um, it was as a supporter distributor and I was even one of the first shareholders of the paper. Are you still a shareholder? I think these days anyone who has a solidarity subscription is sort of equivalent to a shareholder of Greenleft so uh, yeah so in that sense yes I am. <laughs> well, well after being the first person to sell well the first copy that's it's pretty hard to match that but where did you go from there at that time i was getting active in the social movements in brisbane and one of the early committees that i was involved in was called the gulf action coalition which had formed to try to prevent uh, the war breaking out first of all and then of course when the invasion happened uh, we organized you know anti-war protests so you know, my activism really kind of grew and continued from there. I guess as well as the peace movement, my you know my other main interests interests were women's rights, and there was a big battle going on at that time against the Goth Labor government in Queensland, who'd been elected, you know, on a reform platform after all the many decades of uh, Joe Bielke Peterson's rule and raids on you know, abortion clinics and so on. And uh, we were we were in a big uh, campaign to try to pressure the 
the Goss government to actually finally repeal the abortion laws from the criminal code in Queensland. So that was another big campaign I found myself involved in in those early years of Green Left. And I guess the rest history, I would never have imagined, I suppose, 30 years ago that I would be part of the editorial team of Green Left as a someone who was, you know, studying a bit of journalism at uni. Um, I did write for the paper a bit in those early years, but uh, I guess my involvement in the green, in green Left as a project, the media project, has just grown over those decades. Talk a little bit about the connection between Green Left and 3CR. Well, Green Left has always had a close association with 3CR. I think it, it's been an affiliate for many years, and uh, I suppose we, I like to think of Green Left as part of the the community media family and network in Australia. I guess the those media outlets that are essential to our democracy, essential to presenting working class points of view and to holding, you know, politicians of all stripes and governments of all stripes to account. So, you know, I was uh, back in the 90s involved in Green Left radio show on Friday Breakfast and uh, was helping produce and um, that program. I was also volunteering at 3CR during that time and and spent a stint on the management committee for the station, which I was really grateful for that opportunity. So, yeah, I think we've always had a close involvement and I remember the heady days of the World Economic Forum protests in uh, in 2000, uh, actually coming down from Sydney with my green left hat on to be part of a team covering that event. And we, we worked very closely with um, activists in 3CR on making sure that the, uh, the, the Crown Casino protests against the World Economic Forum were well and truly covered by uh, alternative media. It's been a, a history of, of long close association. The foco of Green Left over those years, it's encapsulated so many different areas. Which ones stand out most for you? I suppose, aside from its, uh, its birth, I guess, at a time of war, I mean, one of the very, you know, I think historic things that was going on at that time, well, there were many. <laughs> there was all the Soviet Union and, and that whole period of, uh, of turmoil. But I think the other thing was the growth of environmentalism and awareness around the threat of climate change, of greenhouse, the greenhouse effect, as it was called back then, thinning of the ozone layer, uh, and just a real uh, explosion, I guess, of ecological consciousness amongst people and and I suppose Green Left you know was from the get-go uh, that was a big part of our what we saw as our part of our mission if you like or our, our reason for being was to to try to bring a left socialist perspective to discussions around environmentalism but also to you know work with environmentalists and to ensure that ecology was at the centre of discussions around social change and politics. So I think that that has been a very strong stream throughout Green Left's history, 
And I mean, we've you know adopted now on our masthead for eco-socialist action. I think Green Left is very much you know really putting at the forefront our role as an eco-socialist publication. And we were really one of the first, particularly in the English-speaking world, to talk about a lot of these issues. So I think that that really has been a big strength for us throughout it, throughout Green Left history. And also a close contact with the community and community issues just today. You've been at a rally, speaking at a rally. Talk about that for a bit. Yeah, well, I think that's the other strength of Green Left is connecting up activists. And I suppose we've always seen ourselves as more, we're not just about covering the news and information, but actually building the movement for change, building social movements, connecting activists up with each other, connecting various campaigns and I guess drawing those common threads between them. So, for example, this morning I was in, invited to, to speak at a rally called by the Kurdish community in Sydney, uh, which is part of an international day of action calling for the release of Kurdish leader Abdullah Öcalan, who's been held in virtual isolation on an island prison off the coast of Turkey for 22 years. You know, so I guess we're, you know, we're all activist journalists and see our role, you know, not just about the news and information, but the importance of actually Green Left helping to build the movements for social change. And is playing its part in um, promoting and even just letting people know what's going on in in their cities um, and how they can get involved in campaigns. When did you take on the task of co-editing and, and what does that mean for you? That was a, about a year and a half, two years ago. So I guess, you know, that's been, it's been a real privilege to have a role like that. Green Left is pretty much a mainly volunteer-powered project. But, you know, as a lot of 3CR listeners would be aware, a lot of what Greenleaf does and a lot of the support fundraising efforts are really, you know, by activists, independent activists, but also a lot of people like myself who are, who are members of Socialist Alliance. And I guess to take on a role, you know, part of, as part of the editorial team, you know, it's been challenging but really quite exciting. I mean, we're we're living in a a pretty topsy-turvy time internationally, but uh, then again, looking back, um, some of the back the old copies of Green Left from its first year of publication back in '91, 30 years ago, the world was was just as much in turmoil then as as it is now. And uh, if anything, you could say that a lot of the challenges, particularly those of us who consider ourselves part of the left, broadly, internationally are concerned, we have huge challenges today. So I guess my, uh, you know, I guess our, our approach to Green Left has been always been to try to cover the stories that aren't being covered in, in the mainstream or even the sort of liberal progressive press, partly so we can be inspired by and learn from the sorts of struggles going on elsewhere to help inform the struggles that we find ourselves in the midst of here in Australia, in a relatively, you know, comfortable uh, Western liberal democracy, quite amazing when you look at what's going on 
and just the tentacles of neoliberalism that are extending throughout the world, you, you realise how much common cause uh, we have here in Australia with the struggles going on in Chile, in the Middle East, you know, against this sort of rapacious capitalism and uh, ecological destruction, uh, imperialism, war, oppression and exploitation. So, you know, and you really do, I guess, get a sense of importance of internationalism for the movements here, um, in particular in Australia, and, and what an important role we have to play in our country where we have, you know, relative freedom to make our voices heard, to get out on the streets and protest, to advocate for the struggles where, you know, they're being violently repressed um, by authoritarian regimes. And I think, you know, that's really, I think, something that's just been reinforced to me even more so. And I suppose, you know, having participated in this protest today with the Kurdish community, it just really brings that home. And I'd imagine also fostering close relations with activists in those many countries that you report on over weeks. Exactly. And really, you could say that there is a, I guess like 3CR has its network, Green Left has has its network too, and it, it is a global network. I mean, I don't want to pretend we're, you know, we're everywhere, but certainly uh, when you, just looking at the, the people from around the world who sent us, you know, happy birthday messages for our 30th year, you do really get a sense of that global family, global circle that, that values Green Left, but also that we've been able to reach out to and to meet uh, and to collaborate with and um, learn from as a result of having this terrific project like Green Left for the last 30 years. So it's, it is, it's quite a, you know, humbling really uh, that there's so much respect out there for what we're trying to do. Um, but I think at the same time we're, we're constantly inspired by just recently looking at the you know, amazing struggle of farmers in India, for example, you know, and covering that in Green Left and being in touch with uh, progressives in India who are, you know, in intimate contact with the, with the farmers, organisers and uh, providing, you know, material solidarity and aid to their sit-in strikes that they're having on the roads outside of Delhi. You know, that, I mean, they are experiences that are beyond reach for a lot of people. But thankfully, via, I guess, Green Left, we, you know, there's actually that opportunity to, for human-to-human solidarity. And we can, you know, it's not only for the benefit of individuals who might be writing articles, but actually you can then generalise that, that uh, internationalism and that spirit of solidarity with all our readers and those who tune into our podcast or, uh, you know, watch our, watch our videos and, uh, as well as read our articles. And, of course, a strong, con- a strong commitment and a connection with the Aboriginal communities and activists here in Australia, as 3CR does. Yes, and I, I think the kind of first order of business, really, I think for any radical movement is the question of solidarity with First Nations and uh, and respect for uh, the, their struggles. And uh, I think, you know, Green Left has always tried to provide, I guess, a platform for First Nations activists. 
one of our first you know episodes of our new Green Left show this year were interviews with three staunch First Nations women activists um, around the country, um, Marion McKay, Lizzie Jarrett and Lydia Thorpe, you know, talking to them about what sovereignty means to for them uh, in their own individual experiences and just learning from these amazing uh, women activists. And I think really, you know, in mainstream media does not, give a voice, I think, to the struggles in the way that alternative and community media does um, and needs to. And I think, you know, like 3CR, absolutely, I think Green Left is, is always trying to do whatever we can to, to provide an opportunity, a voice, a platform to Indigenous, to First Nations activists uh, in this country. And of course, also, as here at 3CR, catching up and understanding the new technology well, that's right. And, you know, thinking about it, I mean, Green Left has always been, you know, many people associate it with a magazine. We've, you know, dropped the word weekly from our name because, to be honest, now we're publishing daily on the web. And, you know, looking back through our history of publishing, we've actually always published our content on the web. We were probably one of the early uh, media outlets in Australia to actually take up web-based publishing. So we were a bit of a trailblazing project in that regard. And of course now the mainstream media has well and truly caught up and overtaken <laughs> overtaken uh, alternative press. And of course we've seen the whole commercialisation and monetisation of, um, of internet publishing like, you know, it's just exploded and, you know, how much of it is, you know, now controlled by private hands, but you know, I think it's it's just a fact of life that uh, if you want to reach people, you've got to you've got to get your head around the technology. And uh, I suppose we've been always experimenting, and our foray into you know podcasting, videos, you know live streaming, uh, webinars, and so on is is I guess a, the next phase in that the importance of being a multi-platform. <laughs> multi-platform publication, which I know 3CR is also, also doing itself with live streaming and, and so on. And, you know, but it's, it's where people interact with media and news and analysis and information. And I think we can't leave that space to the capitalist media. Um, we've got to be in there putting forward our um, point of view, giving voice to the voiceless and, uh, you know, putting forward an alternative analysis that actually argues for not just the, you know, desirability of, you know, of working towards a new society, but the necessity for us to actually make fundamental change in our society today if we're going to avoid ecological catastrophe and actually secure survival for, our, for humanity into the future. Finally, Susan, what do you believe will be the biggest challenges in the coming years? Well, that is the, the million-dollar question. I mean... I think in, if you look globally at the sort of balance of forces between uh, the capitalists and the capitalists and, and workers, ordinary people, we're really fighting an uphill battle. But I guess what gives me optimism is that things can change very quickly and people can become conscious, you know, outraged, um, declare, you know, that they've had enough 
and take to the streets, you know, and we see spontaneous uprisings and outpourings of uh, popular discontent every week, every day, and you know, we, we're often scrambling to keep up with, um, with the outbreaks that are happening around the world. So I guess, you know, I suppose the big challenge will be to harness that power that's latent among people, among working class people around the world to actually start to build political alternatives that are lasting and that actually start to challenge the fundamental, the foundation of capitalism across the globe. I think, you know, communications, we've you know, got access to more communication now than we've ever had before. So the opportunities for linking up our struggles are there like they've never been before. But it's about, you know, harnessing that power um, that we have as working people when they're organised together to make lasting change. And that, that still, I guess, is the number one challenge. But I feel like, although the odds are against us in many respects because of so, you know, because the pro-corporate forces have so much power in our society, I'm eternally optimistic that, uh, that if people can just find their common cause, turn that anger into action, organise with each other, and uh, understand how you know what to do next <laughs> in order to build the movements. Then, then I think we can, we will start to see fundamental change. I guess the big thing hanging over our heads is the question of time, because the ecological clock is running down, and uh, you know we are we are coming to a point very rapidly um, within the next decade of where the Earth's capability to sustain itself, given humanity and the capitalist system have done to it is coming to a head. So I guess that's the big challenge is can we make the change that needs to be made in the time that we have. Nevertheless, have a happy birthday. Thanks, Jan. And, uh, yeah, certainly we'll continue to do what we can to ensure that, that we win. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, thanks, Susan. Thanks a lot, Jan. Susan Price, one of the two co-editors of Green Left. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Esto es 13R Radio Capucha.
Feminist Radio in Spanish, every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Radio Capucha, Radio Feminista en Español, todos los miércoles a las 6 y media p.m. The new anti-terror law in the Philippines has been passed and it's been dubbed a human rights disaster. What many people don't know is that Australia helped the Philippines government draft that controversial national security law that human rights groups fear will be used by President Duterte to suppress voices of dissent and prosecute political opponents. I spoke at the weekend with May Kotsakis, Australia Filipina human rights activist, and asked her what she knows about the Australian involvement in that law. Australia has uh, helped in developing that, the law, the writing the law, and it was also accepted by the default that they did help Philippine government in writing that law. We knew that as early as last year. That's why we are intensifying our campaign for asking Australia to stop its uh, military aid to the Philippines, its cooperation with the Philippine government, because as everybody knows, I think, that follows the news in the Philippines, this uh, government is a despotic government, very cruel. The, the law is was passed, was signed by Duterte last June last year in the middle of the pandemic. And so there are many, many complaints and there are many appeals that was submitted to the Supreme Court, 37 appeals all in all from different groups. So the Supreme Court has opened the law to be uh, argued in the court. So there was, a, I think the oral argument is still going on. It has already has one session and it is still ongoing. But in the meantime, the law is already being applied to the Filipino people. It is already uh, being used to harass, to intimidate the people. And what do the appeals say? What are they arguing? Oh, many, many, uh, many sections in the law are being argued. Even just how the terrorism is defined, it is very open, very broad. Even just an intention to organize meetings are defined or um, legal protests on the streets. They are defined as terrorism act. If um, a certain person or a group, they just have a, a sort of suspicion, then they can already be prescribed as terrorists and they can be put to prison or worse, they can be you know, killed. And there are already some proof of this, like one of the leaders, the Cordillera People's Alliance, was issued a warrant of arrest and when he couldn't be arrested, military issued a shoot-to-kill order because he was dubbed as terrorist because he is organizing, because he is protesting against, you know, the government's very cruel laws. And not only that, there is a section there in, in this law that any person can be uh, arrested and questioned just based on suspicion without a warrant can be arrested for 24 days and that can be extended. This law also created this anti-terror council, and this anti-terror council, whose members are all working for the president, they can actually prescribe any person, any group that they seem, you know, they they think is oh, this is this person is a, a terrorist. 
without any uh, benefit of court hearing, any benefit, you, you don't have any benefit of giving you a chance to justify or to complain or to, to counter the suspicion. So anyone can be prescribed. That's why now all the organizations, we have the legal organizations, even here in Australia, we are being red tagged. Our organization is being deemed or being accused as front of the terrorists and as terrorists, you know, supporting terrorism. So that that is the danger of this uh, of this law, and, and there are still many uh, many sections that are being questioned. Just explain a little bit further about the impact on Filipinos living in Australia. In February last year, the uh, military who came to Australia, this was led by General Parladi, who is a member of the National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict. This was created also by the president under Executive Order 70. They came to Australia and and uh, gave a briefing or updates to community leaders, Filipino community leaders. So in the invitation that was provided by the consulate, it says that we are going to be updated of the initiative of the Philippine government on peace process. Of course, we were, you know, we have been campaigning to continue the peace talks between the government and the and the FP. So we were very eager to go there. But when we arrived, there were several of us who came from different progressive organizations. The presentation was nothing about peace. It's uh, naming, identifying all those organizations, progressive organizations that are critical to the to 30 government. And even individuals here in Australia calling them as front organization of CPP and PA and as terrorists because in December 2017, uh, Duterte cancelled or end the negotiations between the NDFP, the peace process between the NDFP and the Philippine government and proscribed the CPP and PA, which is being represented by the National Democratic Front of the Philippines in the negotiation, proscribed them as terrorists. And all these organizations, the legal organizations, welfare organizations, even human rights, independent human rights organizations, are proscribed, tagged as a front of these terrorism, of terrorist organizations. So then, so that was really very, you know, very uh, cruel. Or, of course, uh, it, not only that, it, some of the, our members were very worried about their uh, safety, especially when they go back to the Philippines. It's also sort of divided the community. It creates disunity. Even our friends sometimes would, you know, they would think that, oh, so you are a terrorist organization, you are funding terrorism. So it, it's not really very helpful. Now, this was again followed up through Zoom forum last 11th of February. They invited, again, community organization, but none of our organization was invited. Actually, we uh, found out about the invitation that was sent to us by some friends and uh, some consulates who are friendly to us. So we tried to uh, register, but many of us was not, you know, was not accepted. And even we got the link, we also tried, some of us also tried to join the forum, and we were denied as well. So, obviously, there were a few, three of our members were able to enter because they are not very known to this government, and they actually shared to us what was the uh, forum about. 
because according to them, it is an update of the peace process, and it is the same, you know, attacking all these organizations, and then they are promoting they call localized peace engagement. So instead of having a peace negotiation with the representative of the progressive organization, the NDFP, what they are doing is engaging the uh, small units in its provinces, you know, in its province, engaging them. Of course, they are small, and then they are trying to sort of bribe them or threaten them to force them to engage with them, including, and they make use of all the local government units. It's from the office of the president, and all of the uh, people who are doing this are either military personnel or from the office of the solicitor, you know, of the solicitor general, office of the justice, you know, and office of the president. They have all this authority, and they have also a very big, big budget. I think if there is no lockdown, they would be back here. We are really very worried because the Australian government is allowing this as well, allowing this to, you know, to happen. I thought we we are here, we are citizens, we should be protected. But with this, we are not actually being protected from the harassment, from, you know, danger, from the uh, vilification, defamation of these people and also some of people here in Australia after listening to what they have to say. So it's just bringing forward a climate of fear, isn't it? Yes, I think that is uh, the aim of this government, so that the Filipino people will be frightened and they are not going to complain, they are not going to criticize, they are not going to protest. So that, that is, because that's what what uh, being done in the Philippines with these so many arrests, massacre, red tagging, that's what the intention of the government. And of course, this new law is on top of what Duterte has been doing for years now. That's true, yes. So what Duterte has been doing, because he has, he was being investigated, uh, there has been some uh, reports, you know, the issue was brought into the United Nations Human Rights Council, and actually there was a report, a very damning report, from the Office of the High Commissioner of, the, of Human Rights, and also the, third, the case of the Philippine government, the third case is ready in the International Criminal Court. So what he's doing, what the government is doing with this law is trying to legitimize what they are doing, you know. So what they have done, all these um, human rights violations, these attacks on critics and activists and human rights uh, workers, they are legitimizing that, you know, because that's the law. We can actually red tag these people. We can actually proscribe this this group as terrorists. We can actually arrest them without warrant. We can detain them for 24 days. So they are the, the law legitimizes these cruel attacks to um, the Filipinos. So trying to immobilize dissent in the Philippines means that it's even more important for groups outside the Philippines to work harder on this issue. That's true. So Filipinos that are in the Philippines, of course, many are frightened. You can just hear that people is a red tag, people is being arrested, people are being detained. So, of course, people are frightened. There are people who are still doing protests. You can, you can see them, hear them. They are still doing protests on the street, but many people are frightened. And with the pandemic of the very harsh lockdown and it, everything is militarized, I, every place is militarized, 
even support each other, you know, it is really uh, creating fear among the citizens, among the people. Getting back to the Australian government's involvement in this anti-terror law or anti-terrorism law, Peter Murphy told me late last year, I think it was, that they need to support the Philippines because of the Muslim terrorists. Yeah, that, that is a justification. Actually, the uh, Muslim terrorists, uh, the Philippines has claimed so many times that they have been already eliminated. They are no longer active. And then suddenly they said that there is terrorism in the Philippines. Uh, I think Australia actually should be critical of the support that it is giving to any foreign you know, government. Like, oh, well, the Philippine government has been known to be so brutal. Just think of this. Just look at these uh, killings on, under the uh, war on drugs or war on the poor. And perpetrators are either military or police. So anyone, I think, who are uh, promoting justice, peace, is going to think twice in supporting a government like that. And we don't really know just how much money the Australian government is giving the Philippines. We know that there's so much in aid and they admit that so much in military aid, but there is a suggestion that money is going through to the Philippines that people don't know about. Yeah, because the Operation Augury, you know, that was blocked from the news. And uh, I think that sort of detailed the length and the... um, the scope of Australian support to the Philippines, military support, and not only financial aid. Australia is providing the Philippine government uh, intelligence gathering, including uh, providing uh, drones, isn't it? During the, what is that, the Marawi seeds. Australia provided the drones. And uh, Australia is training military personnel, not only in the Philippines, but also here. That's why the well-known butcher who is serving actually a jail term because of the killings that he has done that he couldn't deny. Hobito Palparan was actually trained here by Australia. And now they continue to train the Philippine military and they say that they are training them on human rights. It's actually the opposite. They are actually very good in violating human rights. Australia also is giving, I think, uh, material, material support like in 2007 after that, I can remember that Australia provided uh, speedboats. So the cooperation between the Australian military or the Australian government and the Philippines is very, I think, is very close. And that is why we are calling, requesting, begging Australia to stop the military aid to the Philippines because it is helping enable the Philippine government and the military to continue with these uh, human rights abuses. So the question has to be, what's in it for Australia? Or are we just doing the bit of the United States? Yes, that is very possible because Australia is the deputy sheriff in the Asia-Pacific and very close to the United States. So that is possible that Australia is the, what do you call that, um, one of the implementers of United States policy. And Australia has a agreement that status of visiting forces agreement that was signed by John Howard during his term and by Gloria Arroyo, former president of the Philippines. So with that agreement, so the actually Australian military can go to the Philippines just like U.S. military personnel can come to the Philippines anytime.
the law is being challenged in the Supreme Court in the Philippines. Any idea how long this process can take? No, I don't have any idea. I know that this, there has been already one session. Uh, the Philippine justice system is, <laughs> I don't know if we can actually get a just <laughs> conclusion to that. Because as we know, like uh, one of the justices, Sereno, was removed from position by the president and his his uh, allies, you know. So we actually, I'm not sure. But I think the Filipinos, progressive Filipinos, are, um, you know, engaging in all means, in all legal means to challenge these and to oppose the reign, the terrorist reign or tyrannical reign of this uh, current government, Philippine government. And also important are activists and perhaps governments from overseas because governments have done very little to help the people of the Philippines. Yeah, I know, yes. Even during the pandemic, uh, the Filipinos here who are on temporary visa, like international students, they actually didn't get uh, much support from the Philippine government. We launched this uh, Damayan Migrante, which we call Damayan Migrante, to distribute food packs and essential materials to these uh, international students who who were left with nothing, no family, no food, no <laughs> support. So even the Australian government, uh, the federal government, uh, did not give any support like this is stimulus packages. The people on temporary visa did not get any from them. At this stage, what can your organisation and other similar organisations here in Australia do to help further the people of the Philippines in this situation? There are many things that organisations or even individuals can do. Of course, we are going to continue, our organisation will continue to campaign not only on human rights violations in the Philippines, we are going to popularize that issue. Also, we are going to continue with our campaign for Australia to stop military aid to the Philippines. There are other organizations can do the same because um, asking the Australian government to do something is, be, is, is going to be very strong if Australians support that call. If Australians themselves especially various organizations will call on the Australian government to hit that call. So that's, that is the, the thing that we are actually asking, not only um, to make maybe make statements, letter to the government, participate in our protest as soon as uh, we have a chance, like if there is no lockdown, then we can do some protest. We are actually, before the uh, pandemic hit, we actually had a plan to go to Canberra in front of the parliament to protest there. <laughs> so the Australian government will know that we are actually serious about our request, our call, because with the support from other countries to the Philippine government, it sort of give them moral support, give them more uh, means like money and more means to continue with their activities, with their current activities. And there is no such positive thing on what they are doing at the moment. But even on socio-economic development that we, that the NBFP has been trying to, you know, to put forward with the, with the peace talks, we seek 
people here in Australia. Finally, May, are you doing this through social media? Because it seems to, to me that the mainstream or corporate media gives little information about what's happening in the Philippines. Yeah, we do different means. We send emails, we do in social media, we um, do uh, in-person protests, you know, to be visible. We will do this in different means that we know, you know. So, and, and we talk to people as well if we have a chance to talk to them. And we raise this in, in different meetings that we attend. We will continue with this campaign. And with this campaign, there is always a, uh, we are asked, why do you actually military aid to be stopped? Isn't that helping the Philippines? And that gives us a chance to explain to them. That gives us a chance to tell them what is happening in the Philippines, the human rights violation that's happening in the Philippines. That raise this issue. A lot of uh, people doesn't, does not know, uh, do not know that this is actually happening in the Philippines because of the so many lies that the Philippine government is is uh, making. Actually, they have hired so many trolls. The Facebook actually has removed 200, I think 200 accounts that are linked to the Philippine government, the trolls and the, you know, who just uh, continue to make fake news or continue to to make accusations, continue to make uh, unsubstantiated information in the social media. So we have to do our part because otherwise they will sort of monopolize the information which are all wrong. Okay, well, thank you, May, once again. I've been speaking with Australia, Philippine human rights activist, May Kasakis. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. A military coup took place in Burma, Myanmar, early in February. A dawn raid arresting Myanmar's de facto leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and some members of her party. Since then, daily denunciations have been held throughout the country. A student has died after being shot in the early days. And at the weekend, security forces fired live rounds and rubber bullets at protesters in the country's second largest city, leaving two dead and about 30 injured. Debbie Stothard is a long-time human rights campaigner and founder of the Alternative ASEAN Network in Burma, based in Bangkok, Thailand, and I spoke with her at the weekend. Debbie, we're told by some originally that the primary excuse for the coup was that there was massive fraud in the recent election, giving the NLD control and power in Myanmar. What do you believe are the real reasons for the coup? The loss of the elections to the NLD is in fact one of the key reasons. The NLD in its first term in office after it was elected in 2015 made a huge number of compromises with the military in order to keep things going. And um, this time, the NLD won by a much bigger majority, and there were a lot of expectations that a second term would enable and embolden the NLD to make a stronger reforms in the country. So the military itself, under the 2008 constitution which it drafted, gave itself 25% of all seats in legislatures automatically unelected and effective veto power over constitutional amendments. What the military was hoping for was that the military-aligned party, the USDP, Union Solidarity and Development Party, actually would gain more seats and give them a majority in parliament. They did invest in uh, the USDP's capacity to win the elections, but in the end, uh, I think the voting population, those who were allowed to vote, decided that they'd rather throw in their lot with the NLD than with a military-aligned party that claimed that it was uh, kinder and gentler. This is one thing. Definitely a second-term NLD would have been enabled to pursue a stronger reform agenda, number one. Number two, the country was actually facing a huge economic crisis as the rest of the world because of COVID, but the militarized response, the military had a parallel COVID committee to the civilian one and had actually been increasing attacks on civilian communities in Rakhine and Chin state, as well as in Karen state. So we saw more conflict, more displacement during this time of COVID instead of more humanitarian assistance. So the country was heading to a showdown, which could have been averted by a proactive second-term NLD government. When you said those allowed to vote, who wasn't allowed to vote? About a million people eligible to vote, at least a million, weren't allowed to vote, especially in conflict areas in the western and northern parts of the country, not to mention uh, Rohingya people who had been stripped of their citizenship 
and various other displaced people. So there was also quite a few uh, workers, internal migrants, who moved from uh, various ethnic states and poorer rural areas to Yangon, the Yangon area where there were more factories and manufacturing. And they also had problems getting their right to, exercising their right to vote because of very restrictive and also non-voter-centered procedures. So would there be a great fear now that the military has taken complete control for the minorities in the West, including the Rohingya? A week after the coup, Senior General Min Aung Lang, who seized power for himself, went on national TV to assure the population that everything was going to be fine. The points that he made would seem to be targeting the international community. First, he claimed that the military junta would implement the joint repatriation agreement with Bangladesh without even calling the community the Rohingya. Our huge concern is that Min Aung Lang is the person who presided over the Rohingya genocide in 2017. This repatriation, which has not got any procedures in terms of long-term independent monitoring on the ground, which hasn't guaranteed the Rohingyas the right to return to their original homes or even guaranteed uh, the right for them to uh, regain their citizenship in Burma. It basically means these people are going to be in an open jail once again in Rakhine State, and uh, they probably will be subjected to a cycle of repatriation and expulsion, which is what has been happening since the 80s. I think most people understand that it is the military committed atrocity crimes, including war crimes and crimes against humanity, even now against the ethnic population. And they, had, they are under no illusions that uh, they're going to have a better time of it under the regime. Do you believe there would have been a concern by the military that the huge economic power that they wield in all the, the businesses throughout Burma, Myanmar, that they could lose some of that if the NDL took over completely? Absolutely. If the NLD had been able to take over for a second term, um, definitely the power and the, mon- the monopolies exercised by military-linked uh, companies, such as Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise, Myanmar Economic Corporation, and Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited, would have been targeted. These are companies that have already been named by the UN fact-finding mission in 2019. And these companies are very much hated by the population because they have been responsible for years of land grabbing, using military might to grab land and um, start very, very oppressive projects on the ground uh, with impunity. So that would have been uh, a pretty important uh, consideration as well. And that's also why we are pushing hard for the various um, governments of the world to apply sanctions to these companies. Applying these sanctions to these companies will send a strong message to the military that you are not going to make profit from this coup, which has already killed workers and protesters unarmed protesters. As of yesterday, a young woman passed away after being shot in the head earlier uh, a week before, 
And yesterday there was essentially a massacre in Mandalay where workers who were protesting the coup were shot at by snipers. And snipers also shot at ambulances uh, who came to pick up the injured. And doctors on the scene were not even allowed to treat people, were prevented from treating the injured. And one of the people who was killed was actually a young boy who was a volunteer medic on the scene to help people who were injured in the protest. You're saying that the international community should take action, but surely international corporations have been working with the military in all these industries that they own. The thing is this. Uh, Before the change in government in 2011, any foreign investor who wanted to invest in the country was essentially put in, forced to uh, go into a joint venture with one of these military-owned companies. And, you know, there's even a military brewery that produces Myanmar beer. But a lot of these companies, after the change, failed to divest and invest or diversify their investments and start working with smaller and also independent civilian-based companies. So they need to actually start taking notice that under international frameworks like the OECD Guidelines on Responsible Business Conduct, UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, etc., etc., they are supposed to review all of their dealings with military companies because these are the guys who have been committed committing war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide for years. That's one thing that's very clear. We have to actually provide pressure on these military companies. They are in it for the money. And so that's the only way we can get the military to the negotiating table to get the military and the NLD, the elected government, to sit down and work out an appropriate return to democratic rule. I think that's going to be extremely important. At the moment, the military juntas refuse to take any calls from anybody on this matter. As far as they're concerned, they're in power and they're not going to give it up. So we do need to improve this leverage. Does there also need to be pressure put on Singapore? I have read that they're the largest foreign investor in Myanmar and also that the generals have accounts and finances in that country of Singapore. There's a few things at play. In order to create leverage to push the military junta back to the negotiating table, we do need to go after their assets. And yes, it's true. Singapore is basically the Switzerland of Asia. A lot of governments and rich individuals tend to put their money there. And um, in the past few years, we've seen a huge amount of investment buying property in Singapore as well. But also, Singaporean companies do have a significant portfolio in Burma, Myanmar, and they do need to start paying attention to what's happening. A Singaporean company has already withdrawn and divested from Burma, basically because they they have some corporate social responsibility. But um, the imposition of U.S. sanctions and hopefully sanctions from Europe and Australia would mean that all of these 
investors will have to actually check their supply chains and their business relationships. If you are working with the military regime and if these military companies are sanctioned, all companies, regardless of their nationality, whether they're from Singapore or even China, will have to work out how to divest or diversify so that their um, supply chain is not contaminated. And if there are sanctions against this military company, if I am a business partner um, using uh, materials or financing or having a relationship with these companies, then I won't be able to sell to U.S. markets or Australian markets or European markets. And that's something that's important. This is why we really want the Scott Morrison administration, government, to actually sit up and take notice and work on principle. If the Morrison government is allergic and hates having refugees, can you imagine what's going to happen to Burma in the next few months if this situation continues? So it's time. If, they, if, if the Morrison government hates refugees so much, they should be preventing the creation of refugees and start sanctioning military companies now. Is it in fact a red herring for Western governments to point to China as one of the, the great supporters of the military, or is that true? I'm so sick of hearing all the, in all these years Western governments choking their responsibilities and forgetting their principles by, call it, by saying China, China, China. A lot of these entities and a lot of these governments just using China as an excuse not to do the right thing. The reality is this. China see itself feels a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on. They were the first, one of the first to send congratulations messages to Aung San Suu Kyi when the NLD won the November 2020 election. They feel very discomforted because they understand China needs to have a viable presence, global supply and value chain. They cannot afford to single-handedly underwrite another military regime because they already have their hands full with North Korea, with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and every, every other fire that they're trying to put out. The reality is China understands stability in Burma benefits China. It benefits China's economic security and political ambitions. And it is also in China's interest to allow pressure to take place so that the military do negotiate a return to civilian democracy. Senior General Min Aung wants international investment. When he spoke to the nation a week after the junta, he said he would repatriate the Rohingya without providing guarantees for their safety or their dignity or their human rights because he knew that the Rohingya issue was a huge international concern. He also very proactively and enthusiastically announced that the country welcomed international investment. The Burmese military knows that it's also not in the interest to rely solely on China. They rely on Russia, but they, what they really have been chasing all these years is a political and economic relationship with Western countries. And Western countries need to use their leverage instead of sitting on their hands and going China, China, China. Do you believe that there is less sympathy than there might have been for Aung San Suu Kyi because of the treatment or the lack of help for the Rohingyas? by the NLD? 
when we go on the streets of Burma at this time, there have been civil disobedience movement protests happening in pretty much every township except areas that are highly militarized and where there's been a conflict, there's, where conflict is ongoing. Pretty much every township in the country have joined the civil disobedience movement, even places that don't support Aung San Suu Kyi. This movement is bigger than Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD township in the country. There has been public demonstration as part of a civil disobedience movement. Even in the refugee camps of Bangladesh, we have seen Rohingya very publicly expressing the solidarity with the civil disobedience movement. The thing is, this movement is calling for an abolition aid constitution and all these anti-human rights laws. They want a genuinely democratic government focused on protection of human rights. And this is where the Rohingya, the Kachin, the Chin, the Rakhine, the the Karen and the Kareni and the Shan and the Ta'ang, all of these communities that are under attack from the military recognize that they have a better chance under Aung San Suu Kyi. The military has been trying to spin a story that somehow Aung San Suu Kyi deserves the coup because of the treatment of the Rohingya, keeping the fact that it was the military itself that committed those crimes and pursued this genocidal campaign against the Rohingya to try and shore up its own domestic popularity. We do need to understand that this is bigger than Aung San Suu Kyi, this is bigger than the NLD, this is basically about the future of the entire country. It must be difficult for you to watch what's happening in Myanmar at the moment from your place in Thailand. How difficult or easy is it to keep in contact with people? Has social media been stopped or is it still working? The military is bringing in a harsh cybersecurity law that is going to allow wide-scale surveillance and shutdowns, whether you are a civilian or whether you're an organization or whether you're a business. The country has been under appeal from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. every day just since uh, last Sunday, so for the whole week, and it's likely to continue. Many sites have been blocked, but what we are inspired by is that young people leading this movement have been very, very innovative and very tech-savvy, trying to find ways and means around these restrictions. In every neighborhood, there's at least one person in the street setting up a station to try and show people how to use VPNs, how to get do workarounds on their smartphones from military restrictions, but this is not enough. There's also going to be a need for better VPN services, and there's already been a call-out for people to buy VPN for the movement and send in those codes to activists who can use it. The reality is that we are getting news as it's happening, despite the fact that those who are doing the documentation are putting themselves in danger, the least we can do from outside Burma, Myanmar, is to listen, to make sure this movement doesn't disappear off our screens, and to push our legislators, our members of parliament, and our government to take effective action. They're calling for a Security Council delegation to Burma 
military companies to be sanctioned. They're calling for attention to stay on the country and to make sure that this coup, this military junta, doesn't get to reign for another 30 years as what happened in 1988. Finally, Debbie, are there any connections between the military in Thailand and the military in Myanmar? There are definitely similarities between what's happened in Thailand and what's happening in Burma, both on the military side and on the movement side. The journalists and other experts have already pointed out that a well-coordinated info warfare, online info warfare, was already planned and commenced as soon as the coup happened in Burma. It's very similar to what happened in Thailand. The military launched a very well-organized pre-planned info warfare online in order to create a sense of complacency and apathy that this military coup was not going to bring danger to the population, that it was a bloodless coup in order to manage a political change that would ensure the NLD could never win a future election. Uh, they were gambling on the fact that international reaction would be similar to the 2014 coup of Thailand, where after the first flush of international condemnation, everyone then went back to business as usual. But we also uh, know that if the Burmese coup was indeed modeled on the Thai coup, then they would also not be planning to have elections within the year. They'd probably have elections after six years. We also have to understand that a lot of the language, the three-finger salute, the sense of international and regional solidarity came up in the movement too. The three-finger salute came from, was first seen in the Thai resistance to the Thai regime. And the Milk Tea Alliance, a movement of young pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Thailand, is very much present in Burma in this movement. So we do have this thing called a Milk Tea Alliance, and uh, we're seeing a lot of solidarity happening through there. Hopefully I can speak to you again about this situation and the people stay safe. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.